podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Today, we're speaking with a very old friend of mine. He is one Jeffrey Thomas Cumpson. These days, he's a marketing professional, and I also know him as a musical mastermind in such projects as the Ninth Grade Power and the Block Signals. I first met Jeff in the summer of 1989 on the ball fields in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Sports were always part of the fabric of our friendship, and as time marched on, music also began playing a crucial role. Fiddling around with a four-track recorder, writing our own songs, playing in high school variety shows. Jeff is responsible for introducing me to a lot of different bands over the course of time. Big Star, Bell and Sebastian, Camera Obscura, and The Future Heads, to name a few. He's also responsible for buttering up my mom and dad, convincing them that I should join a high school band he was forming. Exactly how he was able to do this, I have no earthly idea to this day, but on my 15th birthday, I found myself banging away on a PV Fury four-string electric bass in his newly minted band, accompanied by a basic 60 amp. When I started conceptualizing ideas for this program, I thought about the conversations of our youth and the connective tissue that exists between musicians and producers and who has collaborated with whom. Liner notes are fascinating to me, and they always will be. I owe a great deal to Jeff, and I'm so incredibly psyched that he is here with us today. Jeff Compson, it is so great to see you. How are you? I'm doing well, Matt. It's it's also great to see you. Thank you uh, for the, that introduction, which I feel like probably may would make people think that I am uh, something more than I am, which is just just your friends. You know, you're a bit of a guru in my book, and always have been. Um, so for our conversation today, we're going to be really delving maybe pretty deep into John Hyatt and his eighth studio record titled "Bring the Family," which was released all the way back on May 29th of 1987 via A&M Records. Um, where should we begin here? How did, you, how did you discover Bring the Family? How did you discover John Hyatt? What does he mean to you right now? Yeah, um, okay. So I discovered him probably two or three years ago only, and that's actually why I chose uh, the record because I could have chosen so many things. And as you know, I was kind of torn apart by it. Some things that I used to listen to, if you if you want to talk about records that changed my life or formed me as I was. But I chose this one just because um, I've never really had a record probably after um, I became an adult, which really is only once your kids are born, right? Um, so that, that I, you know, really connected with in this way where I was like, I, I really want to know more about this or this is blowing my mind or, or something like that. So it was, uh, so that's why I chose it. It was probably two or three years ago, and I, I, it's possible that maybe I was familiar with the record that his daughter Lily put out. Um, that I actually cannot remember. Speaking of becoming an adult, as I become an older adult, I actually cannot remember the name of it right now. But um, I, it's possible that I might have been familiar with that record first, and that jogged my memory a little bit. 
uh, you and I were talking before you started recording that John Hyatt is kind of a guy who, if you're into music, sits somewhere. You've seen his name, you've heard about him, but um, hasn't had a ton of success. Maybe his most well-known songs were recorded by other people. So it, it just became kind of time to try to check this out. And uh, what's specific about it was that we we're, uh, were living in Philadelphia at the time in a row home and it was winter. I mean, Philly is a bleak city anyway. Philly in winter is bleak. Philly in winter in a row home is very bleak. So I was making these playlists um, about like just with songs that were more uh, just have maybe like a warmer weather vibe in some way. You know, around like, I don't know, March Madness and anticipating the Masters. I start to get real squirrely. I'm like, you know, I'm like, all right, I, I cannot take this anymore. And um, our one of our mutual friends, Kellen Thomas, he, he and I always talked about the fact that for me, English music is the fall and the winter and American music is the spring and the summer. Like, that's just how I do it. Um, and so this these playlists that I, were ma that I was making, it was like Chuck Berry, Frank Sinatra, Lucinda Williams, like just all this stuff. So I was really cycling through a lot of stuff and, and that came up or he came up, John Hyatt came up as someone who maybe I should check out because I was just sort of in that headspace. And I pulled up uh, Apple Music, what are the essential albums? I think of the three that they listed, this one was first. So let's start at the beginning and I was hooked on this. Um, I, yeah, that, and that was it. Friends, we're talking with Jeff Compson here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things John Hyatt and his eighth studio effort, Bring the Family. Um, before we pressed record, we um, we were sort of talking about him kind of in the context of perhaps a little bit, for, you know, musically wise, sonically wise, perhaps a grittier version of a Huey Lewis in some respects, or, you know, throwing a, a gentleman like Tom Waits, you know, into the drunk tank, so to speak. There's a, there's a certain element of sobriety, perhaps that's conveyed in some of the lyrics that we can talk about a little bit later. But I mean, yeah. what do you think of that type of comparison? I like I like both of them because um, I think there's something if you go with the first one, I think there's something sort of uncool about John Hyatt. Like if you look at his picture or if you see any of his videos or like see him perform live, I mean, he's a, he's a total dad. Like there's this I mean, there's this really like just amazing set from around this time on YouTube of him playing in Germany. And I mean, it is it is amazing. But he's got like tight black Levi's on and like white sneakers. I mean, it's the eighties, but I mean, he, he's, he's not cool. So if you put the first comparison, Huey Lewis, I, I could actually see that. And, and in the way that he kind of would rough up some of the fifties um, and sixties R and B that they both probably listened to. The Tom Waits comparison is also interesting. Um, you know, Tom went through the same thing, Tom, like I know him, uh, Tom Waits. Went Small world the these same days, thing. right? You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. If you wondered where Tom Waits has been, he's been in my basement. Um, he went through the same thing that John Hyatt was going through with this record and in a similar way, like trying to dry out a little bit and realizing that maybe this was his last chance. I think that happened to Tom Waits at some point as well in the 70s and wondering if anybody would give him the money to record or something like that. And there, like I told you, there is a song that I actually feel like is a Tom Waits verse in a Beatles chorus. Um, so I, I definitely would, would agree with that as well, that there's, there's some similarities there. Sure. Yeah. Can we uh, talk a little bit about who is accompanying Mr. Hyatt on this record? It's 
certainly an all-star cast of musicians, musicians, musicians in some respects. Musicians, musicians. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple things. Are my, are my answers too long, by the way? Hard, you'll, you'll edit most of this, right? Hardly, hardly. You can, you can feel free to talk about all of these songs as long as you'd like, as much as you want. Like. Right. Yeah. There's no all cap right. on our conversational sphere. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple, there's a couple things about this record that I think would be interesting to anybody. And this is definitely one of them, this band that he has together. So, I mean, he didn't have a ton of commercial success by this point. I don't know if he's ever really had a ton of commercial success, at least with his own recordings, but I mean, somebody out there liked him because he's got um, Nick Lowe on bass. Nick Lowe also didn't even uh, get paid for this record. He, he said he'd do it for free. Um, he's got, I mean, I don't know why I started with Nick Lowe. He's got Ry Cooter on guitar. Yeah. Like, how does that happen? And, and I mean, he, he's all over, he, well, obviously he's all over. He's a lead guitar player, but I mean, his, his playing on this record is just, I think really outstanding, but it's a really tight band and Jim Keltner on the drums, who's played with everyone. And I would say Jim Keltner as well. Um, he makes he makes this record in so many ways in the ways that a great drummer like that a great rock and roll drummer makes a record unobtrusive except every once in a while you're like huh what was that um but just keeps it moving and swings a little bit and you know just hits it where it needs to be hit um and that's amazing and and i said you know nick Lowe, he didn't get paid but it was, it was they recorded the whole thing in four days so, I mean, maybe he didn't, he didn't need to get paid, but I mean, so it was, you know, that's the other interesting thing about this record. Uh, four days, there are no B-sides, no outtakes. It's these 10 songs. And that's why even, you know, I think, I think any record that was released that long ago, you'd look back at it and be like, well, all right. There's, there's a couple of tracks. There's two, there's literally two tracks on there where I'm like, okay, this is a good one where, as opposed to the eight that are great. Um, but uh, you know, that's why I think even those two tracks where you're kind of like, eh, okay, um, there's no flab on this at all. They're still super tight, um, amazing. But yeah, having those musicians, back to your question, having those musicians w was amazing. And yeah, a musicians, musicians, I think if someone didn't like Hyatt, they would want to hear some of the playing, at least by Ry Cooter, just to check it out. I'd like to just talk about that you know, budget comment that you made a second ago. Four Days in the Recording Studio at Ocean Way is Studio 2 in California. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of antithetical to if you think about where the music industry was in 1987, there were, you know, record labels had these unlimited budgets that they were able to just, you know, toss towards musicians and say, hey, go to town for two months, four months, whatever. This is kind of, you know, speaking to where the, you know, John Hyatt's career was and the kinds of opportunities that he had at that particular moment, like, yeah, make do with what we can realistically give you right now. That's that's a great point, considering it's 87. And I actually think that's what saved this record. Um, if that if, like I said, I mean, he is a little bit uncool in a way. I don't, I don't want to try. I really like him. I like some of his other records. But like, you could totally see this record being like bathed in synths and, you know, like really labored over. Maybe we need to get to 12 songs and one of the songs is going to have a 12 inch remix and stuff like that. Right. Um, I mean, Springsteen, there's a, there's a 12 inch remix of dancing in the dark out there. So, I mean, I think that's what really saved this record is it was made like a fifties and sixties record four days, um, $30,000, which actually sounds like a huge budget to be honest, uh, for four days. But I mean, I guess recording at ocean wave is pretty expensive. I don't know. I'm not great at math, but, um, 
uh, so four days, got to knock it out. I think it's what saves the record. Because if you look at also the next two records, okay, so I don't know if Apple Music is the arbiter of all that is cool, but they're the other essential John Hyatt records. And I find those less charming. And I just wonder if they're like, oh man, this guy's good. Let's give him, you know, three months, four months in the studio instead of four days. And let's put all this stuff at his disposal. And I wonder if Hyatt's the kind of guy who needs, you got four days, dude, knock it out. <laughs> right, right. And and the booker, I think the booker at that time uh, for McCabe's Guitar Shop, which I'm pretty sure is still a music venue today, the owner and booker of the place actually produced this record for Hyatt. So it was like, hey, these are the best songs, that, you know, of your career to this point. Like, we got to knock this out pronto. Yeah, some. I mean, he had been releasing records since the mid '70s. So, I mean, if if someone is is giving you, as you know, if someone is giving you anything for your music, you're doing something right, right? You're you've got something going. Um, but as far as you know, to be still hanging on at that point goes, he was kind of at the end of his rope. And yes, maybe it was a weird situation like that where he just had to take what he could get and go with it. And maybe that helps as well. Friends, we're talking with Jeff Cumpson here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things John Hyatt, all things bring the family and then some. Um, Jeff, this feels like a great segue to talk about your favorite tracks on this record. We could pick a handful or we can do, you know, like I, I say here, as the program suggests, and literally go cover to cover. How do you want to tackle Bring the Family? I will be- cover to cover, Matt. Cover to Let's cover. Do it. We're doing Let's it. Let's do it. We start off right. with Memphis in the meantime. What do you think about this one? So uh, again, this is Ry- this to me. This song um, is musically. It's Ry Cooter. It's a Stones type riff. It's got a bounce. It's got a bubble to it um, that in the hands of someone else, like a million people could probably play it. Maybe uh, let's say hundreds of thousands could probably play, it, but in the hands of someone else, it, it would sound like you know your uncle uh, after a few beers on a Saturday night or something. But it sounds like you know Keith Richards in the '70s um, or, or that sort of thing, and that to me is is always a big thing. But lyrically, and again, Hyatt. I mean, for me, the lyrics of this record are just amazing. To me, it's really hard to write, um, well, to me, it's really hard to write lyrics anyway, but to me, it it would be really hard to write lyrics in a three or four minute song that have this much depth. You could, some of the stuff that he writes, um, I mean, you see it at least in American music stretched out, I think over like seven minutes or something like that, you know, it, it, but he, he has this knack, at least on this record to go I'll say it again, like a 50s, 60s R&B type style or arrangement and really nail some lines in there. And nothing would make it sound worse if I start quoting the lyrics. I don't know if I'll do that. I might not be able to help myself. But um, the story of this song where he kind of draws this dichotomy between Nashville and Memphis, um, it's just a fun one anyway, but it resonates with me as well. There's a He's like the line, he's like, if I hear one more heartfelt steel guitar chord, it's going to do me in. And then need, I think then it goes to, I need to hear a, a Telecaster through a Vibrolux turned up to 10. And that really resonates with me. I, you know, that I've, 
singer songwriter stuff has never really been my thing i think as you know and like i i kind of like that i think he's kind of given a dig at, at some of the maybe quieter acts of the time and i really like that idea of getting good and greasy as he as he puts it yeah and he seems to also be questioning some of the authenticity that might be happening in some other parts like you mentioned nashville you know put the cow horns back on the cadillac that kind of thing like yeah it's yeah kind of the um, times in 1987 it could be yeah uh and yeah it really talks about i don't think ronnie Millsap will ever record this song which is a good line <laughs> uh yeah i think so i think he is kind of saying like we're gonna do it for real we're gonna go to memphis um, put a little pomade in your hair instead of like a big blowout and you just go out and you, you and if you have Ry Cooter playing guitar, um, oh, so much the better. But it's a great, it's a great starter. Um, when I hear that song, I, I told you about, you know, being in a Philadelphia row home. I mean, when I heard that song, I was back, um, you know, on vacation with my family in like, you know, Clearwater, Florida, driving down the Gulf of Mexico with my uncle or something like that. You know, it's, it's, so it's got that great sort of like soundtrack cinematic thing as well. I love it. Friends, we're talking with yeah. Jeff Cumson here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about John Hyatt's eighth record, Bring the Family. After Memphis in the meantime, we have Alone in the Dark. Kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, you know some vibes that you might pick up on and Al Green's Take Me to the River. What do you think? Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's, I mean, I'll probably say this a lot, but I mean, that's another song that I feel like in the hands of a lesser band, it, it sounds like a wedding band or something, you know, that sort of like loping bass groove, but it's, you know, it's blues, obviously, um, you could really, you could just really screw that up, you can really make it sound uninspiring, but not at all the case here, I think that's a good comparison with where it just sort of rides the kick and the snare and the bass at the beginning with just a little bit of like that kind of grungy um, Ry Cooter riff. And I mean, to me again, lyrically, I probably will, uh, I'll just say now, I will not be able to help myself from quoting the lyrics. The opening line there has a lot to do with Hyatt, who he is. Um, extremes, it's a, what is it? It's a lonely picture of an empty glass. Uh, it's still a life still study. Life, yeah. Still life study of a drunken ass. I mean, I just, <laughs> I don't know. To have that sort of um, self-awareness and be, be that open about it, but he really sells it. There's no self-pity at all. Uh, he really sells it. And he talks about, there's a, there's a bootleg, uh, authorized bootleg of him at the tower theater. And he just kind of, when he teased this song up, he's just like, this is about how, you know, when you're alone and you're doing poorly and how much you hate yourself. And that's something we can all <laughs> relate to, I'm sure. Um, but again, musically, <clears throat> just the ability to kind of pull that off. I think in 1987, there just aren't that many musicians that really could have done it to make a blue, it's a blues song, right? And um, to make it sound that like that and um, his wit also really carries it. It's, it's a great track. Love it. Alone in the Dark. After Alone in the Dark, we go to Thing Called Love. And uh, I don't know how many folks listening know this, but this happened to be a hit for Bonnie Raitt on her 1989 record, Nick of Time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this, it, this is really <coughs> excuse me. This is really interesting to me. I mean, I obviously remembered that song, um, and I remember feeling absolutely nothing about it. Like I didn't dislike it. I didn't like it. And obviously, being my age in in 1989 or or beyond, I I wouldn't think that anything that Bonnie Raitt did was was worthwhile. But um, I, it's a completely different song 
in, in its original form. And this is the one that I think is like a Tom Waits verse that, and then I love the acoustic guitar kind of like downshifts into the chorus, which is a really sort of Beatles-esque chorus. It just kind of goes bing, 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 and then into the, are you ready for a thing called love? And again, you know, if you're listening to us talk about it and you're familiar with that Bonnie Raitt song, you might be, you might think we're crazy or you might say like that song is, you know, kind of lame, but I mean, it's a, it's a great song. It is a great song. I think it's a side, again, side comparison. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, and, and again, some of the lyrics um, of this one, this is probably the most fun song on the record because the, the one thing about it is I, I think most of the songs on this record kind of deal with the same thing, which is this disintegration of his relationship with his wife. And, um, and so this one is actually kind of fun though, just maybe talking about how they had some trouble in more of a lighthearted way. Um, and it's a great song and it's got this sort of like, again, if you've heard the Bonnie Ray version, you're like, there's no way that this is a, an even remotely interesting track, but it's got this sort of like sideways lurch to it. Um, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, and that's the Tom Waits part of it where everything Tom did was always like, it, it was just wrong somehow when he did like his sort of rock and roll or, or R and B type stuff, his piano ballads, usually they were pretty straight musically, not vocally, but musically piano ballads are pretty straight. When he got the guitars out, there's always, there's always something a little bit wrong. It just kind of goes, you know, he's like scrunched up in some way. And the verse of this song is like that. It's just, it's, I don't know if it's backwards, it's sideways, maybe it's falling out of a truck as it goes by. I don't know what it is, but. I totally hear that, especially in some of these lyrics, like I ain't no porcupine, take off your kid gloves, or you're ready for the yeah. thing called love. That, yeah, it's kind of a, sort of a, a slinky, slunky kind of thing going on. And I, you know, I mean, again, great musicians probably don't need that much time, but uh, I just wonder, there's, there's even a, um, I think at the end of the bridge, there's like a kick pattern that Jim Keltner plays that is just like, it's, it, it doesn't, no one else would play it. It doesn't sound quite right to me, but like, it sounds amazing. Like it, you know, it's just, it doesn't seem to necessarily be in time, but you know, I'm not going to question Jim Keltner, but I just wonder if it's one of those things where they're like, eh, can we do that again? Eh, we don't really have time. Sounds good. Let's go. And those are great. You know, those are what make those, that's what really makes records, particularly rock and roll records. I mean, that's a very Stones thing, right? I mean, the Stones didn't even tune up. Um, yeah. I, I love the way Jim Keltner just kind of goes back and forth with being a little bit more aggressive in the pocket. And then like all of a sudden he has like this sort of pillowy kind of texture to his playing that he's just, God, he's like a Swiss army knife with it when it comes. To yeah. He just shows up. He, yeah. yeah, he, you're right. He just, he's in the pocket and then he just shows up every once in a while. Um, and again, it's so funny to, I, my son is interested in the drums and I try to talk to him about it all the time. And I, I guess, you know, everything you try to talk to your son about, you never know what's, what's coming through, but, um, drums, I always talk to him about how, you know, if, if a band has a good drummer, you, you can immediately tell the difference. Like that everyone, everyone is playing. What's that quote that Ringo always said that everyone's playing the same uh, pattern. It's, it's just the fills that make the difference. I mean, I I'm sure that's true. And again, I'm, I'm not going to, who am I to disagree with Ringo, but if you just take that first part of that, there is something within that pattern of the kick on the one and the three and the snare on the two and the four that it, it, whether you're swinging or whether you're sort of just pushing the music along, 
maybe what you're doing with the hi-hat has it has an effect as well there's people like me who could go boom ch, boom ch. and then there's people like jim keltner who when they play boom ch, boom ch, it, it changes the song there's there's just, it's a micro beat or something that they can hear that that none of us can hear and and he's that guy that you're that you the best thing that you could do would be to take that song drop the drums out and have me play the drums or something like that and you would see that while it's not flashy he makes the tune he makes the track i wonder how drummers kind of make that determination or whether or not they're going to lock into the groove you know on one particular track or if they kind of like think about the syllabic patterns of the lyrics and just sort of play off that and just keep things like just flowing and swinging that way I think about that all the time because I mean, I think it's a very mathematical thing. And that's again, like for me, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of sustain that thinking like, well, what did I do last time? Or is it, am I varying this enough or am I sticking to the pattern? But also, you know, you mentioned we, we did some music together. I mean, being antisocial as I am, I never had a drummer. I always try to program a drum machine. And I was like, I hate this. I hate doing this. It's so boring. And I, I mean, it's, it could have been the, I mean, other than the lack of talent, that could have been the end of my music career. I just didn't want to program the drum machine anymore. Um, so I always wonder about that too. When you're, when you're two minutes into the song, when you're in the third verse, how do you keep, how do you decide like, all right, I'm going to do this here. Mystery. It's a mystery. Maybe it's instinct. Probably. Maybe. So after, excuse me, after thing called love, we have mm -hmm. a tune called lipstick sunset. This was a, uh, I think well, this is one of the first tracks he, you know, he wrote, which, you know, became Bring the Family. Again, Rye Cooter just shines big time. Like his his yeah. riffs just kind of like dissolve, you know, um, and it's an app. Yeah. It's such an appropriate title for a song, too. Um, I'm so glad you said that, Matt. That's exactly what I was dying to say. Like that, the way that he kind of paints those those notes, it is just like a summertime sunset, you know, on a huge sky. And again, I reference when I when I found this record um, around springtime is when I start thinking about seeing some of my family again. Um, you know, you see everybody at Christmas, and then maybe you kind of take a break. But we'll we'll try to get together with my sister's family in Florida, or um, even start thinking about your summer vacation. And when I hear this song, or you know, we come to Lancaster in the summer a lot too. Um, when I hear this song, it the lyrically we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but just musically. I mean, it just reminds me of places in my life so much during the summer. Um, like, I, I mean, it's just very humid and like, it just kind of hangs there. It could be, it could be central PA. Um, I mean, he's from Indiana. It's not, it's not too far off. It could be central PA. Um, and that obviously reminds me of my family. Now, lyrically, again, I'll say this is just like a beautiful song about this relationship. And it's about, I mean, to me, it seems it's about when the mechanics of the relationship aren't working, the feelings are there, the feelings are reciprocated, but the mechanics of it aren't there. And his, the way that he writes about these things that are so well-worn paths, he's not the first person to write about that, but I, I mean, it's so poetic. Uh, I, I just, I've really spent a lot of time thinking about these lyrics. I don't always do that, to be honest. Uh, but it, yeah, the whole and but if you put it all together, like you mentioned, with with the riffs at first, uh, it's just a beautiful song with a kind of heartbreaking message to it. 
from the onset, I, I just want to just tease out a couple of lyrics here. There's a lipstick yeah. sunset smeared across the August sky. It, all of a sudden, I mean, he's just kind of painted this beautiful stillness. Then he adds a little bit of, you know, sensuality, sensuality here. There's a bittersweet perfume hanging in the fields. I, when you were talking about Central PA, I just, that just kind of like <laughs> smacked me in the face, if you will. You know, I just, yeah. I, I, I know what he's talking about. I know yep. that, I know that feeling. Yeah. And that's, that is what really brought me in. And then if you, yeah, if you stick around for the rest that you get, you get kind of a sense of what it's about, but that's, to me, that's always interesting the way that you could sort of appreciate a song in two, in two ways and sort of like, I'll put it on uh, when I'm driving through Lancaster County or something like that and not necessarily think about the lyrics. Sometimes I'll really zoom in on the lyrics and just be like, wow, this must've been painful a and B um, cause that's the thing is like, there's so many, you know, you don't, let's hope we, we don't have the dissolution of our own marriage or, or serious relationships, but you have those moments within there where you understand that like the mechanics of something isn't working, despite the fact that you might love someone. Um, and it's, I think it's a very, uh, dad or older person thing. You know, uh, if I were listening to the stone roses, I still like that record, but I, I don't, I, the lyrics don't really mean that much to me anymore, but it's always fun to, or interesting to hear a lyric and be like, oh yeah, that happened to me yesterday or uh -huh. something like that. I don't know. It's trite, but it's true. <laughs> now nah, it catches you at the right moment for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lipstick Sunset, uh, after that one, we have Have a Little Faith in Me. We've kind of stripped this down to some of the essentials, I suppose, focusing, mm -hmm. focusing more on the lyrics. It's got to be no overdubbed, right? This is just raw piano vocal, just raw Hyatt. What do you what do you think about this track? So, I mean, I mean, first of all, just what what a song, and I and I you know I don't feel like you don't even want to talk about it because if you talked about it too much, you might sort of take away the magic of it because it's so simple, yeah. and the lyrics are, the lyrics are extremely simple. Almost to the point, again, if you said them out loud and you were trying to convince someone like this is a really meaningful thing and what Lou Reed always said, like you shouldn't read the lyrics or you shouldn't say, you know, rock and roll is not poetry. You can't have the lyrics divorced from the music. Um, so I get that. But even if you did, you know, no, I don't know that anyone has this like tattooed on their arm or something. Right. Because it's just like uh, when the road gets dark and you can no longer see like it's it's very simple but it's a killer. It's, it's a killer. It crushes you. Um, it's, so that's first, very long first point. Um, but uh, the, the arrangement, um, yeah, so it's just, just piano and yeah, just, just some raw emotion. Again, uh, he's got this great thing where he's such a poetic writer. Uh, we'll make the obvious comparison like a Dylan, right? But I mean, he has such a, he can really ring the emotion out of a vocal. Rick Danko's another one who comes to mind when I listen to Hyatt from the band. I, I'm not that big of a hippie yet, Tarka. I think you know that about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of songs like Stage. I, for some there's there are some bands that I some bands that I just can't get there with, and that's that's one of them, which I, which I don't, I don't, I don't mean to cast aspersion, like, but I don't know that. I don't know that. I don't know that song or that, or even that person. I don't even know who that is. 
you know, you know me. It is hard for me to get close to rootsy music. There's something about it that makes me nervous. I don't know what it is. Which, which was completely shocking when you made your selection. You know, yeah. quite a while back. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, really. I'm, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about. I'm choosing. Straight yeah, no, I'm cho- I'm choosy about it. If you could, you could, you could get any record made by a uh, uh, you know disaffected uh, English teenager in 1995, and I would tell you it's the greatest thing ever made. But if it has uh, any slide guitar on it, it's there's going to be a pretty pretty strong filter for me. Yeah. yeah. Side note, Jeff is probably the biggest Anglophile of music that I know, and he was a lover of fanzines of the day. And he had mail order albums via compact discs coming through. And I was just completely mesmerized what was going on, you know, at your house. Just, yeah. Maybe, you, were, I think, you were on the cusp of a lot of stuff pre. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one who, who was wondering what was going on. I think my mom and dad were wondering about <laughs> the, the expenditure of time and resources there, but, um, but yeah. Okay. So, but uh, there's a story about this where uh, they tried like a full band arrangement i think and the the tape machine wasn't working or the electricity got knocked out or something and either they had they only had time this is the difference tarka if we were younger i would know the details of this but it's you know my head is full of work and kids and and all that stuff so i'm giving you the vague picture um the story so but and and it is like so that night they, they finished the track and they, they recorded it with like drums and guitar and everything. And I think we, we should check this. I don't know if you have a fact checker employed um, that I, I, sadly, I think his wife committed suicide that night. And that like the next day, all that, the drums and the guitar wasn't there and they brought it back to, you know, just this piano. And he was like, maybe that was, uh her doing that that her way of telling me to go in that direction or something like that i mean i'm ruining the power of the story by not knowing but no 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 to add some additional context on what we're discussing here his wife did in fact commit suicide two years before the record was released okay all right so that's so not he must true. have been he could have been in the process of writing this song when he well was playing, no was yeah like, maybe okay. writing, maybe writing the song i know that what another thing by the way just to circle back on something that i think is really interesting about this record you made the point about weird things for 1987 i don't know if you can hear my paper rustling i made notes Tarkin. uh this was recorded in february of 87 and it was released in may can you believe that no that, that doesn't happen not in a three month window. I mean, no, no. Which, which again, so prepared like a year ahead at, you know, year yeah. ahead for PR publicity, et cetera. Which again, tells you that no one cared about this. They're like, is he done? Good. Put it out. Let's never deal with him again. Wasn't there a, a, a an English record label demon records that was willing to just like, I, I think he made a comment or something like that. Like I could fart in a bathtub and demon records would release <laughs> yeah, it. something think, along yeah. those lines. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Something I, very, Tongue in cheek. Well, it's always interesting. There's, I think you made the point about me being an anglophile earlier. You're, if you really like records and you really like, you know, music and rock and roll music, I've found sometimes that people in England will think like stuff that doesn't really interest us is like the best stuff in the world because they sort of imagine this world that comes along with it. And so they're like, well, I love Bob Dylan and I love the band. 
and this must be tangentially related. So, so it must be of similar quality. Where, so for me, it would be like, well, I love the Smiths. And so, you know, I don't know, some random band that I probably thought was amazing. It must be of the same quality because they like soccer and have combed their hair forward. And you just kind of get those. And so I want, I've always wondered about that. He was pretty popular in Europe, I think. Like that, that story I was just telling you about, I think it was on like a Dutch documentary that I saw it or something like that. Um, I watch a lot of Dutch documentaries. Um, and so it just kind of, I think that there's like a, a thing that happens where it's sort of exotic to you. So you, so you, or, or, so you think it's cool or you're like, well, this is the only way I can get in. Like somebody already discovered Dylan, somebody already discovered Springsteen, but those people have changed my life. So I have a small record label I'm going to put out John Hyatt because that's great. You know what I mean? Um, and so maybe that's it. But uh, back to this song. Yeah, there's something that happened where he had this full arrangement and it went away. And then they just went with this piano version. And I think this is another song that is popular because of other people recording it. And it's been like a wedding song or something. But And again, if you if you talk about it too much, you'd strip it of its magic. I, I, it's an incredibly powerful song. And I'd be remiss. I'll stop talking at some point. No, 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 no. I just, I, I just wanted to make sure that we captured the point of this song was not included on the full length release in '87, or at least not the American version. Really? Right. Get out. Yeah. As beautiful of a song as it is, somebody made the executive decision to say, "Let's take this one off and keep it to ten, or keep it to nine, Excuse me. I, I yeah, okay. I maybe I don't know. Uh, but I think, again, okay, to support that point and kind of support the point, to, to go back to the point that I was making, there's something really almost too plain about it. Like, it's just, you know, I mean, the lyrics are, are it, it's exactly what needs to be said and no more. And I suppose if you were um, evaluating it for its commercial potential, you would say, well, this will never be played on the radio. This will never be on VH1. Um, because it's just you and the piano and, you know, this needs to be, this needs to be filled out a little bit or whatever. But I mean, uh, the the song is, is beautiful. It's powerful. The outro, um, his sort of like kind of when he kind of affects his soul singer persona, maybe not soul, maybe soul. Yes. But more like R and B soul, sort of like blues shouter type thing. Uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's really good. And again, in the hands in the hands of someone else, you'd be like, all right, dude, tone it down. But nothing, nothing wrong with it. He nails it. And no word is wasted. No word is wasted. Very, very economical. Friends, we're talking with Jeff Compson here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa, all things John Hyatt and his eighth studio effort, Bring the Family. Thank you, girl. It's a bit of a palate cleanser following this track. I mean. I, I'm kind of yeah. a sweaty mess, like rocking out in the pit, listening to this track, you know, and it's, just, yeah. have you seen the music yeah. video for this by chance? Yeah. So this, I mean, this, this one and the next one, tip of my tongue are the two that for me are kind of like, okay, this is fine. Like I, I, but, but it's interesting because this is a little bit more raucous and also it, um, I think, like you said, because the video, I think this was the only single from the album, but I find it to be one of the weaker tracks. Um, it's very, uh, uh, just like, you know, slide guitar, rootsy makes you nervous. The overuse of the word girl 
in songs makes it turns me off a little bit. It's just it's a little it's a little hokey um, in some ways, but I, I think it's redeemed by the it's it's a sweet song, um, which you know is only the kind of thing that I wouldn't have said when I was eighteen. I would say this is dumb, but um, it's a sweet song about someone who has had a, a an impact on his life, and and based on where he was to write this song, it's funny to me. It sounds like this would be a song that was written after this album like because he had put out this great record gotten you know realized that he was worth investing in and gotten his career back on track and so it's interesting from that perspective too maybe a little bit of foresight um that or either foresight or if this doesn't work out if my music career is in fact over um maybe my life is okay anyway and so it's a sweet song and i like that about it yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm thinking about just how it's just completely on the opposite end of the spectrum from what opens the record Memphis in the meantime. There's this craving of authenticity in Memphis in the meantime. And then all of a sudden, this feels a little bit more like a very commercial Nashville country sort of track. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know where I'm going with that? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the commercial aspect of it. I mean, this it's no surprise that that was the video. And um it's got like that's i mean again i think there's a lot of stuff that i will say during this um i'll be honest with you i keep i I keep i keep thinking that like uh again our our mutual friend i'm sorry your listeners don't know who this person is but like i keep thinking of kellen being involved in this discussion and i can just see him like rolling his eyes but i mean it almost sounds like a robert palmer guitar type opening riff you know like you if you like this record then your starting position has to be that like I like rock and roll music. He he patently does not. So it you know he, so anything that kind of veers off the path will be will be more than suspect to him. But yeah, so it's got that that opening riff has that kind of like '87 distortion on it, like super compressed, um, you know. And so it's it's kind of like maybe they were going for something there. And there's nothing wrong with the track. It, it, like I like it. I put it on one of those playlists that I was telling you about because um, it just fit, you know. But I'd say that maybe says it all for me is like it fit in the middle of the playlist when I was just trying to like keep things moving to the next big song. That's how I kind of feel about this song. Friends, we're talking with Jeff Compson here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. So, okay, after Thank You Girl, we have, you mentioned Tip of My Tongue. What, um, what, do, you, what do you like about this track in particular? Well, I do like the lyrics on this. I think there's some really good song, um, lines like, uh, I broke your heart with the back of my mind just because, you know, I'd mentioned that tower theater bootleg that exists, you know, just the way he teased the song up where he said, it's just about if you say something wrong. And that's kind of a, that's an interesting way to describe that. Like not really being very thoughtful with your words, broke your heart with the back of my mind and some words came out and uh, made a crash landing. Um, there is some beautiful playing by again, Rye Cooter on here. And I will give uh, Jim Keltner another shout out just because it's got that sort of like uh, maybe a little Nashville, like sort of like a country country politan beat where it's just like that. And I don't know if you got this mic's picking up that clicking, uh-huh. but it's just um, it's very steady. Um, it, it it has like just a nice little cadence to it. Um, and it, I like this song, um, but it's to me, it's these two songs are kind of like gearing up for what I think is like a huge finish. Um, so um, I like some of the lyrics. I like some of the playing. Um, and the, the live version is good too. Some of the 
some of the um so, do you know sonny landris the guitarist sonny landris i should know more i know the name he's played with i mean I, he i don't i didn't know him don't worry um he's played with a ton of people as well and he's in the the band that was the live band for this speaking with jeff cumson on cover to cover with matt tarka about all things john hyatt and his eighth studio record bring the family so uh jeff we just uh, finished uh discussing tip of my tongue what do we have next on the track listing i believe it's your dad did yeah and i mean this song to me is like um this is the song that sort of sealed sealed it for me with this record um I just think if you um, grew up, you know, there's just a certain like, if you grew up middle class and, uh, you know, your dad was like in business, there's just like a certain lyrical vibe or picture that he paints that probably makes a lot of sense to you, even if the particulars don't necessarily make sense to you. Um, I mean, I suppose it's because it's just about like, I think, probably not anymore, but I think gets you started to think about what would be called the typical nuclear family of like the 50s and whether that applied to you or not I suppose it's more accurate to say that whether that applied to you or not you maybe just kind of thought of yourself that way anyway because a lot of our media portrayed that tv movies or whatever so it sets this very familiar scene there are some great little lines in there but the way that again it's like this kind of like nakedly emotional thing about, you know, your own father and um, the way that, you know, you kind of end up becoming like him, whether you want to or not. And that the way that the father can do so much for a family, um, it's kind of a weird topic for a rock and roll record, but it's very affecting for me. It was very familiar to me, especially, um, you know, being a dad now myself having two boys um, and thinking about my own dad. And so just emotionally, I was, I was really hooked on it. You don't hear a lot of songs about stuff like that. Right. I mean, if you uh, like, we've talked about other things that I like, I mean, like, you know, I mean, so like, okay, I'll give you a great example. So Paul Westerberg, um, the great, great songwriter for the replacements and the first replacements record, he said, he says, uh, I hate my father. One day I won't. Okay. So, you know, right. So, you know, it's like, he's basically saying like, I'm 18. And when you're 18, you, you hate everyone, like even your, you know, so, and that's a tough line to swallow. Right. I mean, if you had any kind of relationship with your dad, it's just, to me, that, that was always a tough line to swallow to just, to just hear somebody say, I hate my father. But then he's like, one day I won't. And they're like, you're like, Oh yeah. Um, and then to follow that up, I mean, he, Westerberg, when his dad was dying, he wrote all these songs about just like sitting there with him and, and that sort of thing. But Hyatt, I think, goes in a different direction. Hyatt obviously wasn't 18 at this point, maybe a little bit more emotionally mature. I mean, he just goes straight for the it's more just like, you know, I, dads are tough on you sometimes, but they love you so much and they're tough on you for a reason. And in that Tower Theater bootleg, he does this like sort of spoken word thing where he talks about like, you know, we're going to catch hell from the old man when he gets home, like, because we were throwing rocks or something like that. And it is, again, I'm going to say it again. It is all just like a little hokey. And when you say it out loud, but to me, it totally works. It it, it totally hits a sweet spot for me. Um, musically, I think it's a great track, too. I think Jim Keltner's drums on this, it swings a little bit. It's like a kind of like just a little rollicking groove. 
I love that sort of descending guitar riff that that Ry Cooter does. You know, um, I I love this song. I listen to it while I run, um, which again is like a total dad move. Uh, Like I might as well just be like pumping my fist like a dork. Um, But it's it's I, I think it's a great song. I love it too. I, everything you said, Keltner's drums on this one are so cool. And that watching my own dad go to work, um, you know, there's, there's a quick little line in here, you know, about going to work to watch some jerk pick up the perks, like, boy, you know, maybe st- struggling, you know, to just kind of get through the day. But you, you, you think that they're doing things for all the right reasons, but at the end of the day, like it's taxing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what is it? You go to work just to watch some jerk pick up the perks you wore in line to get, and the guy they hired just got fired. Your job's expired. They just ain't told you yet. I mean, that whole thing right there is just great. It's, it's great wordplay. It's not complex, but like, it's just like, oh yeah, cool. Um, and so um, it, it's so yeah, taxing, and um, how it talks to you about how so many things are out of your control, even though you think you've done all the right things or prepared in the right way for the world, that you're not going to necessarily get what you think you deserve. But um, the resilience that is in the song is is great too. This sort of um, smart ass kind of way of looking at it um, when he goes to buy the car, just from the hell of it. Um, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I think also, um, representative of the generation, like my dad and your dad, um, kind of like, you know, I don't think either one of our dads would be that irresponsible, but sort of that, like, kind of cockeyed look at, at authority a little bit, um, in like, a in like a very Midwestern way, which I know your dad's from Western PA and that's, and so is my dad and that's basically the Midwest, right? So pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, it to me, I mean, I might be taking it too far, but to me, it's like my dad, John Hyatt, your dad, David Letterman, Tom Brokaw, like all rolled up into what, like, just this sort of, like I said, this sort of like, there's like a respect for authority, but like not a reverence for authority. Like I will do the right things, but I also am kind of my own person. And I, I really, um, uh, it just really it struck a chord with me. Um, yeah. I think it's a gr- I think it's a great song. The little breakdown at the end where the girl dumps the oatmeal again. He packs so much into this song. Like he does that with they're not long songs. Even like the girl dumps the little girl dumps the oatmeal, and that's the one that I think about all the time. The little girl dumps her oatmeal over the boy's head, and I think that's when he says, "And you keep it. You love your wife and kids," and kind of a callback to, "And you keep it hid." Like, I mean, that's life as a parent, like, and I mean, my sons will probably tell you, maybe I don't keep it hidden all the time, but like when stuff like that happens and you're like, why, why are you doing this? You're like, okay, guys, oh my gosh. let's just move on. Let's keep it moving. Right. Yeah, and that, it, and, it's you know, cathartic for me too. Yeah. 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 Watching and my that, and that was purposely throw, you know, throw his breakfast on the floor. Right. Right. Why? <laughs> right. And that was my dad. That was my dad's approach to everything. It's to, it, and, and I say that with, with a lot of, with a lot of love that like, there's really no reason to get freaked out about anything or, or to get upset. And um, sometimes I'm able to pull that off at home. Again, you can take a poll around here and see how often it is. But when I do that, I know that I'm channeling my dad and that song, the song also reminds me of that. Absolutely. Yeah. After your dad did we have a tune called stood up um what 
does anything speak to you about this particular track? It's the, uh, I believe it's the penultimate track. Yeah. I mean, this is just, this is, I think this one is just like, I think this is the track of the record. I think even with have a little faith in me on there. Um, I mean, I, I just think this is a, a melter. Like, um, I don't even know if that's a word, but like, I mean, it's a burner and it melts you or something, or if it were an, if you were in England, you'd call it a belter. Maybe that's what I was looking for. Um, just this slow burn, like again, a white guy doing a soul type song and um, a pretty simple lyric, pretty good lyrics, but a, just a heartfelt delivery about being there for someone um over and over again no matter what really happens and i, I just there's there's a live version of this that and i don't think they play this one live very often i well i mean i saw a commenter on youtube say that so it must be true um but i mean it's just the one that it's from that same germany show that i referenced oh man it just i mean i, I can't even I, I don't know he's just able to pull something out of this and Sonny Landreth, the guitarist that I mentioned earlier, when he's in this band, instead of playing the slide, he uses a volume pedal. And it's amazing, you know, to kind of do the pull off. Yeah, yeah. uh, he uses a volume pedal. It's amazing. Um, just just really, really emotional song, again, about being yourself and, and being there for somebody else. Um, stood up and I'll do it again, even though I got left out in the pouring rain. Again, it's not complex. And I, I think he can be poetic, but I, I think he, it's a, we used this word earlier. It's economical. It's what needs to be said. And for this one, there, there's nothing wrong with the lyrics, but for this, I think it's the delivery that sells it um, just as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Economy of words. I, it, it feels like this is just a, <laughs> it feels like a love letter to his wife, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting because um, he was such a disaster of a human being, I guess. Like, I mean, a big drinker, got in a lot of trouble and he's kind of now being this person. And I think his daughter, Lily has talked about this as well. He's kind of being this person now who's like the, the strong one, the rock, um, whatever, you know, however you want to put it. And that's interesting to make, allow him to, that's interesting that he makes that shift that quickly. Um, because that's what this song, that's what maybe have a little faith in me is about that, that you're not going to be the one that collapses. You're not going to be the one that runs away or hides in some way. Um, and it's really powerful and even more powerful knowing his story and what was going on in his life at this time. I'm thinking while we're speaking uh, about just the sequence of these tracks, Stood Up is just, it's an absolute perfect segue from your dad did. Thinking about like this idea of somebody that was, you know, trying to, trying to keep their act together, even if they just blew their top and, you know, some situations say at the breakfast table, but then he's literally kind of putting himself in kind of an authority figure shoes and, and stood up like, that just like the stages of growth from A to B, like perhaps being a, a, a little kid or, you know, early teens. And then like, like we're saying, that's, here, yeah, you know that's I mean? brilliant, Matt. That, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, I, I totally see that. That's, that's really interesting. I never thought about that before, but uh, intentional or not, I, I think you're exactly right about that. It's like, here's what I, here's what I learned. Yeah. Here's what I learned as a kid and I'm going to do it now. 
um, really interesting. And again, knowing who he is, who he was at least, um, to be able to kind of sit there for that person and do that. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Good, good, good observation. After stood up, we have the closing track here called learning how to love you. And now he's put an age on here. He's, he's 34. If he's speaking autobiographically. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, this one I think is interesting for a couple reasons. Um, you know, I mean, it's obviously not a hard rocking record, but all the bluster is, is kind of put away of, of your dad did, or the sort of like, you know, big, big vocal performance of, um, stood up just him and an acoustic guitar and pretty plaintive. And this song is, is a great ender of any album, but for this one, again, I think it's about how difficult this relationship was with this person. And it's something that we can all relate to in a meaningful way, because whether you're, you know, your relationship with your spouse endures, that's what you're doing. You're learning, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about, but you are, you're, you're, well, I guess I hope that someone is learning how to love me, you know, I mean, cause that, you know, how difficult you are and how, you know, I mean, you're, you were, I'm useless and horrible. I know that, but like, cause we all are, right. I'm not, yeah, we're all useless and horrible and someone is willing to say like, all right, fine. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, and so I, I, you know, it's not for me to say if I'm able to do that, but I know in my personal situation that my wife, Nancy is certainly able to do that. She is able to say, um, despite the fact that you're useless and horrible, um, this, that this endures and it's heartbreaking to think about him being in that situation, learning how to love this person and that person having to kind of go away in the way that they did. Um, and also interesting to note. Um, that I've often wondered if that's where Hootie and the Blowfish got the title of their album from, because it's a great line. It's some life that I was living in some cracked rear view. And I think that's the title of their like breakthrough album. It is. Yeah. From 94, 95. That's a really, that's a, that's an astute observation, Jeff. Hey, I love it. That's a great line, right? Some life that I was living in some cracked rear view. I mean, that's great. Yeah. So maybe that's why they took it. I don't know. But I always wondered that. I'd like to close our conversation with a uh, discussion about cover art. So as we both know, it's a 21st century. Uh, The world's constantly fast paced. The one thing that, you know, luckily prevails is some kind of supporting art form. And that is cover art when it comes to any sort of new release of a piece of music whether it's a single full length EP, whatever. When you look at this album cover from John Hyatt's bring the family, what emanates from it? What speaks to you? What um, you think it's an actual accurate depiction of what you're about to experience? Well, it says zero budget to me is what it says. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I think it is accurate. Um, but but at the same time, you know, you could have you could have gone into this with a big budget and knowing that this is his last chance and knowing the the nakedly uh, personal content of the lyrics, you, you would maybe come up with something similar and say this picture of him. Now, the look on his face, I do think is interesting because he's he's a little bit confident, I think. Um, 
gives yeah. you maybe a, just like the slightest hint of, the, of an FU look, just a little bit. Um, and I think that's what going back to your dad did like that. He's been through a lot and that's sort of how he's looking at things. Like not a total F you, not like, you know, I don't need it. He knows he needs people. He knows that he's, his heart can be broken. He's been humbled. Um, but he's going to evolve, not change. He's going to be this sort of maybe smart ass kid that he was. Um, that does some of the line that, that who wrote some of the lines in thing called love. Um, he's he's going to be still be that person a little bit. That's what that's what I see. I, I see him as like just a little bit of like, why are you taking my picture? Get out of my face. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting. I mean, that's not the way to put it. But the, overall, that vibe, like he's just kind of like, what? You know, um, so that's what I see. Um, maybe a little bit of 80s typography, but again, you know, there I don't think there's a huge budget. And if you look at a lot of album covers from 87, could have been worse um yeah but Could've yeah neon or whatever yeah yeah i see i see not a lot of budget but i also see maybe a good photographer who kind of caught that um yeah, who kind of caught that and i and i think that that's you know that it's appropriate no matter what so i, I don't know maybe the budget was was fine i don't know but and and that's maybe what you would have ended up with anyway great use of light and shadow yeah, it's moody. No, it's moody. Yeah, black and white. Yeah, there's no, there's zero. There, I mean, there's zero disconnect between the cover and the record, right? Because it's not. That's one thing, and I think this is what maybe happens when you have four days and a small budget to record something. It's not a colorful record, right? It is. It is sort of like blacks, shades of gray, some maybe tan and brown. You know, it's there's not a lot of color in it. Lipstick Sunset, probably the exception there. Um, and so that, I like that. Uh, I like that aspect of it. That like if it were sitting in my front seat, like the CD of it, I would know exactly where this is going. Um, that sort of thing. I like that. Jeff Compson, old friend. Thank you so much for being on the program, talking about all things John Hyatt. And uh, it's, it's an honor to have you. Matt, this is an honor to be asked. Um, I really enjoyed this. This has been the highlight of my week so far. It's only Tuesday, but I assume it will it will remain the highlight of my week. Really fun to talk to you. It was um, like we probably would have done this um, just sitting somewhere having a beer anyway. So uh, really enjoyed it. And um, thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much to all of you for tuning in to Cover to Cover please take a moment to hit that subscribe button from wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Stay in touch with Cover to Cover on Instagram at Cover to Cover Conversations, all lowercase, all one word. Or if you prefer email, please feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Alexandria, Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world.